0: some common sense.
1: Oh. Yes, sir. They have the cars stopped in and by there?
0: We
2: still don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: Welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, the moment a lot of us had been waiting for for a while, and many of us were glued to our seats watching this Murdoch trial, and almost like unbelievable. You know, when we always say that old, that old adage that truth is much stranger than fiction, and if Phil and I had said upon covering this early on in this case that you couldn't make up some of these facts in this case if you were a writer trying to write like a Netflix special because it's so bizarre. But all of it was true. And a character like Alec Murdoch, what writer could invent a guy like that? But yet real life shows that it's absolutely true. Everything he did is true. And now we have this, this man... who was a multimillionaire attorney from one of the most powerful families in South Carolina being sentenced to life, two terms of life without parole, as the judge put it, the rest of his natural life he'll spend in prison. And they're not even done with him because he hasn't even been tried for the financial crimes that he's committed. What we were so amazed at yesterday was how quickly The jury came back with a verdict in less than three hours. That is incredible. And many people thought, oh, there's going to be doubt here. There's plenty of room for doubt. But you know something? We talk about B-A-R-D, barred, beyond the reasonable doubt. And there's where the rubber hits the road, the word reasonable. What doubt is reasonable in this when you have a man on the stand who's charged with killing his wife and his son? and a man who just continuously lies, and has been caught in his lies. So does that affect the reasonable doubt that a juror could have? You bet it does. And we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this. And I know everyone's been asking me, uh, where's Phil Grimaldi been? And so here he is, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective. Phil Grimaldi, welcome back from your little bit of a hiatus.
2: Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back. And uh, how you doing today, Billy?
0: I'm doing good. You know, a lot of people have been asking, where's Phil been? Where's Phil been? And, uh, here I am, in the flesh. Here he is, he's back. You know, Phil, I don't know if you were surprised. I was actually out last night and over my phone, I received a text. The jury came back guilty of everything, of all charges. You know, I'm like, wow. And then they also didn't waste any time The sentencing today at 9.30 a.m., unbelievable how quickly
2: this whole thing moved. Yeah, you know, Billy, in most cases, when a jury comes back that quickly, three hours is very quick. Um, Usually it means uh, an acquittal. Uh, However, in this case, I think the jury saw two specific things I want to bring up. One is the fact that Alec took the stand and he lied. uh, He admitted lying. He admitted uh, being a a criminal, basically, by uh, embezzling money from clients. Uh, All the different things that he lied about. He actually lied about the fact that he was present at the location just before the homicide took place. Up until the time that the information was downloaded from the phone uh, of his son, Paul. And again, that video, those two things, the video and him taking the stand. I think in my heart, uh, he planned to take the stand all along once it was revealed that uh, the video was going to prove that he was at the location. And he had lied to the police on numerous occasions. One, the day of the incident, uh, and then in two follow-up interviews by police, uh, he said that he wasn't present. Now they had the smoking gun evidence. You can't uh, disparage or deny uh, a video that was taken. It gives exact location, times, different things like that. And they were going to bring on several witnesses that were going to say it was him in that video, his voice. So again, once that they had that, it was turned over in discovery to the defense team, they knew that uh, Alec had to testify. His his attorneys probably didn't want him to, but I think that was the hail mary. But those two things, the jury saw once he was on the stand, admitting all of those terrible things that he did and all the lies that he committed. And then you had the video; it was over for him.
0: Yeah, Phil, this is. I'm going to play some of this. This is that smoking gun video you're referring to.
3: <laughs> is that a- The video you just watched was sent on Snapchat by Alec Murdoch's son on the day he was murdered. Prosecutors allege this video proves that the disgraced lawyer was with his son Paul at their South Carolina home before he was killed. (laughs) eh? According to a Snapchat representative, That video was uploaded to Paul Murdoch's memories at 7.39 p.m. and later sent to friends at 7.56 p.m. on June 7th, 2021. Uh,
2: The video we just discussed that was part of the Snapchat search warrant return? Yes. That uh, that you just testified was uh, uploaded at 7.39 p.m. and sent at 7.56 p.m.?
3: Yes. Later that night, Paul Murdoch took another video on his phone, this time in their dog kennel. Listen to how many voices you hear.
1: Get it. Get back.
4: Here, Come
3: here. Come here, Close friends of the Murdoch family testified that they 100% believe Alec Murdoch's voice is heard alongside his son Paul's and wife Maggie's in the video.
1: Recognize the voices on there? I did. Did you recognize the voices of your second family? I did.
5: And what voices did you hear? Paul's, Miss Maggie, Miss stella And how sure are you now? Positive. 100%. That's correct.
3: Expert witnesses said the video was taken at approximately 8.44 p.m., which is minutes before investigators believe Paul and Maggie were shot. Later, Alec would call 911 at approximately 10.06 p.m. to report the discovery of the bodies of his wife and son. <laughs> this
6: is Alec Murdoch at 4147 Moselle Road. I need the police immediately.
5: My wife and child shot badly.
3: Family friends also testified that Alec and Paul had a close relationship. Here's a video of a father and son at Alec's 61st birthday.
4: Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you. Happy
2: birthday! To you. Thank y'all so much. Thank you, baby. As the
3: Murdoch trial continues, Law and Crime will keep you updated on all the newest developments. Reporting for Law and Crime Network, I'm Sierra.
0: So, Phil, when we talk about the smoking gun, that was it. And w- one of the most important things in investigations, time. We always talk about time. And when you can have accurate time stamps to limit the alibi of the number one suspect, who in this case was Alec Murdoch, and in this case is not just the suspect who's been convicted of this crime, that I think was the piece of evidence that convicted him more than anything else because he couldn't lie his way out of it, although he tried to.
2: Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, when we talk about motive means and opportunity, a person that has a solid alibi has to be eliminated from the suspect pool. Because uh, if you have a video of a person at another location, and you know, when the murder took place, then you know that that person cannot be the uh, perpetrator of the crime. So in this case, there were so many things that were happening just prior to the homicide. Um, For instance, his wife, was seeking the advice of attorney for perhaps divorce proceedings. Uh, His family was questioning about uh, his acute uh, addiction to these pills. There was pills that were found and uh, they uh, looked up what type of pill they were and they were actually uh, trying to sit him down and talk to him about his pill addiction. And then the head of the law firm, uh, the day of the murder, sat him down and said, we know that you've been uh, embezzling millions of dollars uh, from the firm, from clients. So he was being, uh, hit with all of these things, uh, at the same time he was being confronted. This is what the prosecution put forward as a possible motive without laying out an exact motive. They just brought out all these different details and it was up to the jury to decide, is this the motive for the killing of Alec Murdoch's wife And son. And I think that the jury was able to piece together all of these little uh, pieces of information that were put forward with regard to a possible motive. And then they looked at the evidence. And uh, according to what I read in the newspaper today, one of the jurors was quoted as saying that when we went into the room, it was nine for conviction two for acquittal and one uncertain. And within 45 minutes of reviewing testimony and evidence, they were all unanimous in their decision that he was guilty. However, they continued to deliberate for the full three hours and they came back with the verdict.
0: Yeah, you know, it is incredible when when jurors do, you know, that's one of the first things they do when they go back into the room. They said immediately, let's take a right. vote. Let's see where we are right now. And I'm going to play a little bit of that, um, uh, the video. On that, uh, one juror who was spoken to by the press this morning, and uh, we'll put this up on the screen.
4: Exclusive juror Craig Moyer breaking his silence, revealing how the jury came to their decision. When you first got in the room,
6: you took a vote. It was two, not guilty, one, not sure, and nine, guilty. What was your vote? Guilty. From the start?
4: Yes. Moyer says it didn't take long to get everyone on the same page.
6: He started deliberating, going through the evidence. Everybody was pretty much talking. And about 45 minutes later, we, after all our deliberating, we figured it out.
4: So it took basically 45 minutes for you guys to come to a decision.
6: Probably about 45, maybe an hour. That's really fast. Yeah, the Evidence was clear.
4: He says it was this piece of video <sighs> featuring Alex's voice at the crime scene moments before the murders that convinced him.
6: He Hear his voice clearly and everybody else could too.
4: Alec finally admitting it was him for the first time a year and a half after the murders. When
6: he said it was him, were you surprised? I was very surprised. Why? That was his only savior right there.
4: For some people, it's so hard to understand how a husband, especially a father, would kill their own son. What made you so sure that he had?
6: His responses, how quick he was with the defense and his lies steady lies.
4: Did you feel like he was a liar?
6: A good liar but not good enough.
4: Moyer also not convinced by moments like this. (sighs) Alec appearing emotional on the stand. What did you think when Alec Murdoch took the stand?
6: Hmm. I didn't think much of him. Really? Really. I didn't see any True remorse or any compassion or anything.
4: Even though he was, he cried a lot on the stand.
6: He never cried.
4: He never cried. What do you mean by that?
6: All he did was blow snot.
4: Did you not see tears? No tears. How did you know he wasn't crying?
6: Because I saw his eyes. I was this close to him.
4: Moyer says he also didn't buy the defense's argument that Alec didn't have enough time to commit the crime and create an alibi. The defense said there's no way he could have done all these things, clean everything up, get it all ready, and then go to his mom's and come back in that short amount of time.
6: I think there's just enough time.
4: All those factors leading the jury to hand over that guilty verdict.
6: If you really look at everything, it's,
0: it's, it's all plain and clear.
4: And the judge delayed.
0: So Phil, like we were saying, I mean, that video, that was the smoking gun. And that's where his lies hit. They hit a brick wall. They just were not buying his lies, his crocodile tears, his emotion on the stand. He was a good, uh, he was a good witness. After all, he's an attorney. He knows how to, you know, we, weave a story. However, when you lie and then you get caught in a lie through evidence that circumvents your lie,
2: and now you got to make up a new lie, no one's going to believe it. You know what, Billy? Uh, The fact that he took the stand now, it seems rather outlandish that someone that had committed as many crimes as he was going to be accused of and have to admit it on the stand With all of that said, he did very well on the stand. Now, I don't think his testimony would have led to an acquittal. However, I think he fielded a lot of tough questions pretty well. He came across, even though like uh, the juror said, it didn't look like he was crying, that it was just you know, uh, things coming out of his nose and stuff. I don't even want to get so graphic, but again, uh, he didn't get emotional when the verdict was read. So again, to me, that said that he was, uh, basically just acting or faking it. Um, but his experience as an attorney, he's been in the courtroom many, many times he's, uh, tried cases as well as defended cases. And again, so all of those different things, it was very, very easy for him to portray himself as a victim and admit to some crimes. And he was effective, I think, again, uh, as best as you could probably be going on the stand. I mean, very rarely do you see defendants take the witness stand in their own defense. However, in this situation, he did. And uh, I don't think he did a bad job. I don't think it was that that got him convicted so much as the other things, the other pieces of evidence, but very risky. If you had Joe Murray on the show right now, he'd probably agree. And any most other attorneys, very, very risky to put your client on the stand. Uh, the burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove the guilt, not for the defense to prove innocence. So, again, uh, very risky, but I think he did do well in that respect. Absolutely.
0: You know, Phil, I, I wanted to play that. Just when you see a man that was once an extremely prominent man, an attorney from one of the most influential families in South Carolina. In fact, the judge said in his speech uh, during the uh, during the sentencing, he said, the picture of your grandfather was on the back wall of this courtroom, which we had to have removed because we wanted to make the trial fair for both the prosecution and the defense. And when we realize what this prominent family, what you have become, and as, you you know, coming from this prominent family, you know, it's really tough to take. And you see, you know, you see him walking in that jumpsuit with hand, you know, handcuffed and you can't help but think this guy wore a suit and tie his whole life. This guy was an attorney his whole life. He was representing clients. He knows. The, he was a prosecutor. He's been on the other side of that fence. And to see him walk, and that's one of the reasons I did it. See him walk toward the toward that van, the prisoner van, with his little clogs on there. It's very powerful to see that. Mickey Mantle. Thank you so much for the twenty super chat. Hi, Bill and Phil. Some polish for the racks. No, <laughs> well, no the old number you. Seven. I love it. Thank you very much. So, you know, Phil, we're gonna go back also. How did he get to this point? You know, Phil, could I, I
2: just make a quick point about the judge uh sure. Clifton Newman? During the sentencing, he said something, and I tell you, I gotta give a lot of props to this judge. I liked him. Uh he said uh, you know, Alec, during the, uh, during the, the trial, you made the, the comment when you were testifying, what a tangled web we, we weave. What did you mean by that? And he said, he responded, he said, well, when I lied, I kept lying. He goes, and you're still lying as of today. In other words, he's never going to, you know, fess up to the truth that he killed those two people. And real quick, his response, I mean, if I was wrongfully being accused of murder and at my trial... Uh, it comes down that I'm guilty. I would start, you know, raising hell. I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. He just stood there very stoically and took it. To me, that says guilty, guilty, guilty.
0: Absolutely. Let me play a little bit of the judge right now. This judge was very cool. Yeah, he was good, this guy. I don't know why it's not playing. There it is.
4: We built a the tempur tech oh. deck.
0: The deck floats into the landscape. <laughs> Let me remove
2: that. It now. had two more seconds. It was going to. Oh.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll just uh, so, yeah, this, this judge was very, very cool. He was very measured. Some of the decisions that he made uh, in what to let in and what not to let in were very, I mean, that's going to be the basis of an appeal. There, this, There's no doubt that this this case is going to be appealed at some time. The Quite, thing that struck
2: me about the judge, too, Billy, he's from the area. He knows this family. He knows the hierarchy, the dynasty of the Murdoch family. And he had no problem with doing what he had to do to, uh, you know, oversee the case and, uh, you know, proceed with justice. So I give him a lot of credit. Absolutely. Good
6: morning, Your Honor. I'm innocent. I would never hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never hurt my son, Paul
0: Disgraceful, right, Phil? And that was exactly what you were talking about. He's standing up and he's still lying. But there's no. His eyes are like beady eyes, like like a shark looking at you. You know, would you be pounding
2: a- on the table? I didn't do this. If you were, in yes. his, you know, he's so he's too uh, he's too measured. Yes, I, I and, and I don't think a person in
0: that courtroom believed it.
6: Thank you, Your Honor. Thank
0: you.
1: Anything further?
5: I don't think further comment is necessary, Your Honor. Thank
1: right, you. Murdoch, you'll come to the court for sentencing. This has been perhaps one of the most troubling cases, not just for me as a judge, uh, for the state, for the defense team, but for all of the citizens in this community, all the citizens in this state. And as we have seen based on the media coverage and there throughout the nation, you have a wife who's been killed, murdered, a son savagely murdered, a lawyer, a person from a respected family who has controlled justice in this community for over a century, a person whose grandfather's portrait hang at the back of the courthouse that I had to have ordered removed in order to ensure that a fair trial was had by both the state and the defense. And I've sat through the trial, not only having sat through the trial, but also as the presiding judge of the state grand jury uh, sat through and participated in the issuance of search warrants of various sorts, bond hearings and uh, have had to consider many things. And we have this case And I'm also assigned to preside over 99 others, at least 99 other cases. Though testimony has come up regarding many of those other cases, uh, I will not make any comment with, with regard to any other pending matter as I have been assigned those cases as well. It's also particularly troubling, uh, Mr. Murdoch, because as a member of the legal community and a well-known member of the legal community, uh, you've practiced law before me and we've seen each other at various occasions throughout the years. And it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you um, go, on, go in the media from being a, a grieving father who lost a wife and a son to being the person indicted and convicted of killing them. And you've engaged in such duplicitous conduct Uh, here in the courtroom, here on the witness stand, and as established by the testimony throughout the time leading from the time of the indictment and prior to the indictment throughout the trial to this moment in time, uh, certainly you uh, have no obligation to say anything other than saying not guilty. <clears throat> and obviously, as appeals are probably expected or absolutely expected, I would not uh, expect a confession of any kind. In fact, as I've presided over murder cases over the past 22 years, I have yet to find a defendant who could go there, who could go back to that moment in time when they decided to pull the trigger or to otherwise murder someone. I have not been able to get anyone, any defendant, even those who have confessed, to being guilty to go back and explain to me what happened at that moment in time when they opted to pull the trigger, when they opted to commit the most heinous crimes known to man
0: I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'm sure all of us know the judge who was very cool. I realized, look how measured and soft-spoken he was. And obviously a man of wisdom, a man of experience, a man that's been doing this for a long time. And he didn't get excited or anything. He just simply sentenced him to 30 years to life consecutive on both the murders of, of Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch. And... No emotion from Alec Murdoch. And, you know, I think even the courtroom, everyone, I think, sort of expected this. I don't think they expected it to be as quick as it was, but I no one was surprised at the verdict.
2: Absolutely, Billy. And all the blubbering he did in court uh, when he was testifying and when other people were testifying and when they were showing crime scene photos, All that emotion was coming out of him playing for the jury. There's no jury present today, and what does he do? I'm not guilty, Your Honor, and he just stands there with a, you know, a deadpan stare. Uh, That judge judge showed uh, a lot of integrity, in my opinion. Uh, Like you said, Billy, we have to applaud him. Uh, He had to preside over a difficult case. And I think he showed uh, his emotion, that he felt how, you know, this man killed his son, killed his wife and his son. And I believe the judge recently, within the last two years, lost his 40, I think 42 or 43-year-old son to a blood clot. So again, he was able to uh, personalize the feeling about the loss of his son and look at someone that took the life of his son. So I think that's why he went hardline with the sentence. I mean, I don't think that was any surprise there, the, uh, the two 30-year sentences. And um, I think uh, justice was served. Absolutely.
0: Amy in Boston, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Do you think it would be the same outcome if the financial crimes were kept out? You both are awesome. Thank you very much, Amy. I don't think so. I think the smoking gun piece of evidence was the one we played, the video of him being at the dog kennel. I don't think he could overcome that because he didn't know about that. And when he was interviewed earlier on, he lied. And now they... Because of discovery, they give it to his attorneys and his attorneys are like, oh, no, you just told a whole complete story about this. Now they have this timeline down to, you know, 30 seconds. It's it's so tight. How are you going to get it? And he tried to lie again in court to circumvent that. So, no, I don't think it would have mattered if the financial crimes didn't come into it
2: here's the reason I think the financial crimes came in the fact that he was going to take the stand because once he takes the stand, he's open to any question and they can go into his history and talk about things that he's done. And he would have to admit it or else they would bring people in to testify to say that he did these things. So again, the financial part of it, if you remove that, yes, Billy, you're 100% correct. There was a mountain of evidence placing him at the scene, putting him uh, you know, very close to the crime scene at the time of the murder. You have that video. He's wearing one set of clothes. But yet when he calls the police, he's wearing different clothes. And where are those clothes? He can't account for them. There's so many different things. The shell casings that you and I talked about before we went on the air that matched Alex's favorite gun. Those were found at the crime scene. Again, just a mountain of evidence, uh, technical evidence. Uh, you know, with regard to the cell phones, the the vehicles, computer showing that he was racing around, all the different things. So, again, I agree with what you said, Billy. If the financial crimes weren't part of this case, I think we would still have a conviction. Perhaps the jury would have pondered a little further, maybe examining the evidence. But uh, I don't think it was that impactful on the uh, on the guilty verdict. Schmitty, thank you very much for
0: the two dollar super sticker. What a tangled web we weave. No kidding. And that came right out of Alex's mouth. Daddy Crab, thanks for the 499. I always ask, what pushes people to the point of murder? Thanks, Bill and Phil. You know, Daddy Crab, that's a question that criminologists and law enforcement people, clergy, has, have been asking since the beginning of time. I'd like to also, right now, welcome another guest, and we're very excited to have her on the show. It's uh, Dr. Debbie Goodman from St. Thomas Aquinas College in South Florida. Dr. Goodman, Dr. Debbie, welcome.
5: Thank you. So great to uh, join you always, uh, Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil. And wow, what a historic day. It's um, I think the jury got it right. Uh, We all know about um, it could go one way or another. Would there have been any doubt? I didn't see any any shred of doubt, not a speck from beginning, middle to the end. And, you know, we can remind the viewers here that when we have a family related murder, there are different classifications and I think um, just different reasonings and rationales in the, uh, the killer's mind, of course. And so we really have three types of classifications on this family murder in and of itself. As we know, it's called familicide when a member of a family kills a member of a family. But now we narrow this down with with greater specificity, and we call this abzoricide. When a husband kills a wife and when a son is murdered, we know that the data analytics on a wife being murdered the husband is somebody to take a, a first and thorough look at. And when a son is murdered, we know that there's same gender association and identification that we look again toward a father. Now, if a daughter is murdered, the data points a little differently, more so toward mom. So at the very onset of this case, when, you know, we're asked to to take a look with, with commentary and analysis, just the mere fact that, that it was a family-related murder, we kind of start there. Now, I just heard the tail end of your um, discussion where you said the why question. Well, certainly, you know, I have some some thoughts to share, if I may, as to why did Alex Murdoch kill both wife and son? I think this is a matter of, of narcissism, grandiosity, and even Alex Murdoch himself vacillated between who he was, now, who he was, we could point to somebody of, of knowledge in the legal profession, of, of professional success, of, of helping community. But again, we now look at the present and into the future. Who is he? He is a man who is desperate. And as we know, Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil, desperate people do desperate things and they will kill. So my feeling on this is that Alex Murdoch, to deflect away from the enormity of what he was facing with these financial crimes and corruption, coupled with a a significant drug addiction. He got to a point where he made a decision, as we know, we call it mens rea, actus reus. that's all part of first degree murder. Did the individual plan it? Was it with purpose? Was it deliberate? And was it willful? I say yes to all of that. And then the second piece is, did he carry it out? He did. So the jury got this right. I think they should be complimented. They should be commended. As always, our our excellent law enforcement representatives did a tremendous job here. And um, I think justice was rendered. You know, Dr. Debbie, we all um, we
0: obviously have the law enforcement perspective more than we do, of course, the defense. And when you hear a lot of these talking head attorneys on different channels, some of them were like, oh, there was a lot of potential doubt. And the judge also did dismiss one of the jurors rather at the 12th hour uh, because apparently she was talking about the case uh, to people. He didn't uh, like her professionalism as a jury, and he dismissed her, which is his right to do as a judge. And if folks don't know, usually there's as many as 16 people that are jurors, and they only use 12. So if one messes up, they can simply remove that person and insert the other juror who has watched the entire case. But, you know, law- lawyers will, will say, oh, there was doubt here, or there was doubt there. But I, I was talking to Phil about this before and to all our listeners. The most important word with that is reasonable doubt. And is any of the doubt that you saw reasonable with the fact that he couldn't tell the truth? Didn't that sort of make all the doubt go away?
5: absolutely uh that that's so on point and accurate sergeant bill detective phil and and we know too years of going to court for for the different roles that we've been involved in and 101 in the courtroom, if if somebody lies, therein is also an unraveling of everything of credibility, reliability, responsibility. So in other words, this seemingly uh, you know, astute tactic, let's say that the defense wanted to suggest, okay, Alex, why don't you now admit to lying about your whereabouts and how you did lie to law enforcement regarding where you were? But let's uh, make that a statement and a platform by which, okay, people will say, you know what, we'll excuse that lie, we'll believe everything else you said. I just didn't see any doubt at, at any uh, step of the way. I thought the prosecution did a very um, wonderful job here in presenting the facts, and and the jury responded and reacted as they should. You know, one doesn't need to be a lawyer to serve on a jury. I know sometimes there's discussion about you know, do we or do we not believe in our our jury process here in the criminal justice system? I always have and I always will. I think that those who are selected to participate, It's an honor. It's a privilege. You know, these 12 men and women, they listened to the facts. They took it all in. I'm certain you you mentioned this already. But the fact that the verdict came back so quickly, we know the data analytics. When that happens, it does point to the favor of the prosecution. If it were to go, you know, a few more days into weeks, then we start to wonder, gee, there might be some. you know, discord in their own way of seeing it. But but from beginning, middle to end, at least for me as a criminologist, I I saw that the facts were pointing toward the murder. He had already lied. We could no longer trust him. He was at the kennel. Um, just everything and anything presented here created zero doubt for me.
0: Absolutely. Um, Natalie um, Lintz, excuse me. Thank you for the $2 super sticker. Heather, whatever, Four ninety nine super sticker, and she says thank you. No, Heather, thank you, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for being a big uh, supporter of us. Lula Morocco, thank you so much. You're a, you're a oh. supporter of police off the cuff. Thank you for the fifty dollar uh, super sticker. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's so very important, and I appreciate. No, so can that. I make
2: a point about the reasonable doubt that you talked about earlier? Sure. Um, you know it, it, the jury gets this case and. Uh, When we talk about reasonable doubt, if we're going to believe the defense team that someone came onto the property in a very uh, narrow window of time without any weapons, goes onto the property, uh, secures weapons that are already there, and then kills two people, and uh, according to what the defense put forward, Alec is present. He's present at the location, doesn't hear any gunshots. And we know that there were numerous shots fired on both of the victims. And these people now make their escape, one or two individuals. They were leaning towards, from what they put forward, that there was more than one shooter. So again, is that reasonable? No, I don't think that's reasonable at all. And I think that's what the jury was able to come to that conclusion. Where's the reason in this? All of the things that were put forward left only one Uh, Opportunity for uh, guilt on the perpetrator, which was Alex. I think that it's just completely unreasonable to think, like I said, that someone, one or two individuals get onto the property without any weapons, uh, secure weapons that are there already, commit two murders, numerous shots fired, and they're able to uh, escape. And Alec being present doesn't care or no one, you know, no one is able to uh, put it together that these uh, unknown perpetrators had committed this crime. So again, it's completely unreasonable. And that's why the system worked in this case. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real
0: Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, both myself and Phil Grimaldi are retired members of the service. I am retired sergeant for the NYPD. Phil, a retired detective, and we have the privilege and the honor today to have Dr. Debbie Goodman from St. Thomas Aquinas uh, College in Florida, and she's, a, as you could see, she's an educator and she knows what she's talking about. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. You see the folks in the green font, they're part of our uh, our YouTube channel memberships, but most importantly, if you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. Give us that like, and that'll help us uh, have YouTube push us out there. So let's get back to the case. I mean, you know, some people, and you couldn't help but draw some parallels to the O.J. Simpson case, just in the the largeness of this case. It was a huge case. It was nationally and internationally known. And the notoriety, of course, Alec... Uh, Murdoch hired the best attorneys that money could buy down there. But however, there was also, there was no real racial angle to this, you know, which was a big thing in the OJ case, black jury, uh, black judge, uh, white defendant. I would think almost the whole jury was white. I didn't see the whole makeup of the jury, but none of those things came into play. But was it possible in an area that this family ruled this town for over a hundred years. They ruled with an iron hand. They were the district attorneys in this town. And then they were a private, powerful, powerful law firm. And people in the town were afraid to speak up against them. When people ask, they go, I don't want to be on camera, I don't want to give my name. So think of the fear that this family elicited from the community. And that's something that had to come into play. And keeping this trial in this town and picking a jury that was unbiased. Dr. Goodman, what do you think?
5: Yes, I think that's an excellent point, Sergeant Bill. Again, to Detective Phil about that reasonable doubt piece, I just spell it as three letters, L-I-E. That's it. It was unreasonable. It was a lie. So now back to this um, you know, community-recognized family lineage of generations. Yes, I think the fear was there. But here's the good news. The good news is that, that G, these jurors and members of the committee and, and community here of service, they believe more strongly in the facts and the facts prevailed here. So I think they were able to overcome whatever, you know, element of fear, intimidation, the uncertainty of, of going up against. Right. It's like, you know, the little dog with the bark versus the, the huge uh, animal. I think that's that's what we saw here. But but the beauty of our system, which, again, you know, I know the three of us certainly are, are very proud to be affiliated. I certainly love being a part of it all. But sometimes we, we don't get it right or, or members of the community don't get it right because they saw something a little differently. You know, I was asked earlier about this issue of the emotion and and. Alex Murdoch crying, and and I was asked, what does that mean? Is he grieving? No, I don't think he's grieving at all for Maggie for Paul. I think those tears, as we know, we call them alligator tears, but I think it's all very inward and introspective for him and himself that he thought he would get away with it. He did not. We will be seeing him incarcerated for the you know two life sentences. I agree with that sentence. And and that's it. He's crying for who he was and who he now is. And he did not get away with this atrocity. And I know you mentioned about these financial crimes and the corruption therein. In totality, he could potentially face another 700 years, depending on which crimes he actually is going to get acquitted for of the 99. So he's you not You know, going.
0: Dr. Debbie, Phil and I asked each other, you know, purportedly, he stole between eight and 12 million dollars. Where is all this money now? I'd mm. like to know.
5: There's I no w- way he spent it all on pills, you know? No, but it was um, stated, again, the validity or not, but somewhere in the scope and scale of a 5000 to potentially $50,000 a week opioid addiction for, for many years. I mean, I, I can't believe either that it all went there. But but the fact that an individual, I mean, who who would have been at the top of the pyramid in in our field and a legal scholar would slide so into the depths of the darkness and the macabre to 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 kill his own wife, his own son, and to still maintain, you know, his last words, of course, at the sentencing hearing: "I did not kill my wife. I did not kill my son." And, you know, would he ever admit to it? That's another issue. We know he did it. Would he ever submit the truth? No, absolutely not. You know, you know,
2: Doc, I'm glad you brought up about the pill addiction because I watched a special the other night on the news regarding the Murdoch case. And there was a doctor who was a uh, addiction expert. And he said, based on the amount of. Uh, oxycodone that Alec claimed to be ingesting, that over a period of time, his brain would actually be rewired, is the way he put it, meaning that he wouldn't have any conscience. He wouldn't have any guilt. He wouldn't be able to make critical decisions based on the fact that his brain was so rewired from all of this addiction. And he was kind of making the uh, argument that killing his wife and his child was able to be accomplished by the fact that his brain was so taken over by the narcotic abuse.
0: Well, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh No, I'm
2: sorry.
0: No, I was just going to say Maui Swift. Thank you for the 1399. But she has a question of Dr. Debbie. Great to hear your perspective. Dr. Debbie, I struggle with how he was trying to get a chicken
5: out of the dog's mouth and within minutes blow his wife and child away. Yeah, it's again, uh, Ms. Swift, you know, thank you so much as always for for joining and participating with us. I I just can't believe Alex Murdoch didn't do this. He did it in in response also to Detective Phil and to the the expert on, on, on drug addiction. Yet he made a decision. See, I believe this. I believe it was Alex Murdoch who made the decision to also take the stand. I don't know necessarily that his defense attorneys made that decision. But I do think to the point that Dr. Phil is making, if he wasn't in his right mind and if his, um, you know, thinking process and and delivery of the facts or whatever he wanted it to be as a scripted uh, statement, Somehow he knew enough, I think, that he thought he was far superior in intellect and in um, commanding the audience of the jury. So I believe that was his decision. And therefore, he still has the legal knowledge, even though he's disbarred Um, to Miss Swift. You know, people who are desperate, I think, do desperate things. Um, The fact that here he is on Paul's cell phone. And yet he wants to say that he wasn't in the proximity. It's just alarming to think that somebody can lie and believe it's the truth. We do call it uh, psychopathic. We know that there's, there's differences between the sociopath and the psychopath. Psychopaths can be very interactive, engaging, high functioning. They'll have zero remorse. I do not think Alex Murdoch has any remorse for what has happened to his wife, to his son, The the inward uh, regret might be that he's incarcerated for the next, uh, you know, however many years for the totality of his lifespan
0: that he lives. Absolutely. I mean, it's it is amazing. And when you talk about people that are the best liars on this earth are the ones who believe their lies because they can't tell the difference between the truth and a lie. So put them on a lie detector and probably the line would just go straight like that, you know, because they're believing everything they say, even though it's a complete and absolute lie. You know, I wanted to just play something. We had a guy about a year ago, his name was Eric Allen, and he was actually from the community of, uh, and he did an unbelievable documentary on on this case and uh, a wrongful death lawsuit. And we'll get more into that later. 2019th was the boating accident with Paul Murdoch. And, and we'll get of course more into it, where Mallory beach was killed and, a body wasn't found till five days later. And then, of course, the double homicide of Paul and his mom, which occurred this year in, in 2021. And and the whole thing about Alex stealing money from the law firm. If you were a writer and wrote novels and handed this to your editor, he would say, No, there's too much going on. You got to edit this down, but this is real life. This is yeah. you almost can't believe it, right?
5: It's very
2: true, and to be honest with you, that's one of the things that that I've been struggling with that people have been telling me I've been doing well with, but really trying to section out this whole story and focus on one section at a time, because if you don't focus on one section at a time, you're never going to be, be able to understand the big picture. If if you try to give a 30,000-foot view of this whole story, you're going to be confused. And so you're right. A, a writer wouldn't recommend this story because there's just so... <laughs> So much going
0: on. There's moving parts. So let's let's put a little um slide up on the screen, and this may help our viewers just to get uh a sort of a bird's eye view of the players. Uh, and up at the top is Randolph Randy Murdoch III. Uh he, he I guess he started the law firm, right? And he actually uh, no,
5: actually
6: his grandfather started the law firm.
0: Oh, right. It was about hundred years mm-hmm. old, but they were also yep. The solicitors in South Carolina, which is our equivalent of the district attorney's office, right? Correct. Correct. And then Randolph Randy, he's also in the law firm. There's uh, Alec. And I know it's spelled Alex, but it's pronounced Alec. We get we get all kinds of shit when people say, it's spelled Alex, and you're saying Alec. Because we were told that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> Margaret Margaret Maggie Kennedy is she was shot to death on June 7th. Uh, John Marvin, he's, uh, he's Paul's uncle. And then we got Richard Alexander Buster Jr. He is implicated in the murder of Stephen Smith. We don't even know all the details to that because it's very sketchy. And then Paul Murdoch, who allegedly uh, was the cause of Mallory Beach uh, being jettisoned off his boat and drowning on the, that, that date in 2019. And then he's a victim of a homicide in, uh, in, in this year, 2021, June 7th. So just right there, there are so many, so many moving parts to this. And it's just, I just saw you, it's almost like watching a baseball game. You need to know who the players are, right? I just wanted to lay a little bit of the foundation there because it's like, that's the story and that's going to be on Netflix. It'll probably be a series after that because Netflix is more like a documentary, but this story is, as I said, a writer could not think of all the things that,
2: occurred in real life and they're true ordinarily art imitates life but now we have life imitating art here because like you said billy in that piece uh it's so outlandish to think of all the things that took place in and around uh alec murdoch and the murdoch family and when we first started uh you know covering this as soon as the, the murders happened we were uh did some shows about it we talked about going back all the way to 2015 with the stephen smith case there were five uh, five bodies, we called it. There was the two in the murder. There was Stephen Smith. There was Mallory Beach in the boating accident. And then it was Gloria Satterfield, who was a, uh, uh, a person that works in the home. Yeah. The, the housekeeper that worked in the home. And an insurance policy was taken out just prior to her death that uh, they were able, they knew that they were going to collect, Alec knew he was going to collect money off the insurance policy if she died. I think the policy was taken out within a month or so or a couple of months of uh, the time when she was killed. And again, during the murder investigation of Paul and Maggie, they uncovered information that they were able to start a murder investigation into the Stephen Smith case. So again, all of the different things that are going to be coming down, the House of Cards is falling in on Alec Murdoch and uh, we haven't seen the last of uh, his criminal trial. I'm sure. Well,
0: right. you know, it's amazing, and I'm sorry, Dr. W, if I uh, jump, jumped ahead of you. But the amazing thing about the Gloria Satterfield case, in essence, he got another lawyer to sue him, so he was right. cooperating in a lawsuit against himself because he knew he was going to try to steal the money, and it, we they were awarded four million dollars, which was supposed to go to the sons of Gloria Satterfield, and instead, Alec Murdoch stole that four million dollars.
5: Hmm. Yeah, I was just going to add that even seeing some, some of the commentary and submissions from the, uh, the viewers, the colleagues about the tangled web and the fall from grace, you know, we understand murder. We understand how murderers think. And at some point, there's a tipping point. Now, back to what was just presented, uh, Detective Phil, Sergeant Bill, that there was so much now that could have tipped the scales and tipped the tides. But now I really believe the culmination of it all and all of the players and all of the factors led to the financial enormity that was now about to be revealed. And I think that's what tipped him to do this. Kill Maggie, kill Paul, gain the sympathy. People will feel sorry. They'll yield on the financials. They won't they won't want to be insensitive to a grieving husband, a bereaved father. It's
0: just an an unbelievable story. And like, when you think that someone that does this, who's smart, like he is, you wonder, like, how did he think he was going to get away with this? Or do people that do these crimes even think they're going to get away with it? Or they just do it anyway? Phil, what do you think?
2: Well, I think that, uh, you know, uh, the the house of cards was falling in, his world was collapsing and, you know, he had several things that he had to uh, think about. One was his wife was already talking to an attorney. She was going to divorce him based on, uh, you know, finances that were unaccounted for, his pill addiction. So that was probably going to come out. And then the uh, lawsuit and the charges against his son, Paul, perhaps other things could come out based on that. We know that he went to the hospital on the night of the boating accident and tried to coerced several people that were there to say that his son wasn't driving the boat. They had video of him with some kind of a, uh, a, you know, solicitor shield, which is equivalent to the district attorney's office. Uh, He had a badge hanging out of his pocket. So he was throwing his weight around and all of these things might uh, uncover, you know, uh, some of the financial crimes that, uh, that he was involved in. So perhaps... Uh, again, being addicted to the pills, he didn't have much logic. He didn't have any remorse. He didn't have conscience. He thought that by, uh, doing just what Dr. Debbie said, he was going to kill those two people and he was going to get people to feel sorry for him, sympathy. And maybe perhaps, uh, he could still continue on and not have all of his misdeeds uncovered. Amazing. Phil, you want to just do this uh, quick, uh, Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories. We only wish he had more time, but he's very busy in his law practice to come on and join us and give some great commentary.
0: Because I think the commercial works.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully so. (laughs) We got to let him. You know,
0: Dr. Debbie, we, we we speak all the time by text and we talk about cases that we're both talking about. You you do a lot of what I call talking head stuff on TV. You do a great job. And it's always good to talk with other people in, in the field to see what their feelings are on, on cases. And so many people, I think, in this case thought there's doubt. There's going to be – and some really prominent defense attorneys, of course, that's what they do for a living – but they were saying, oh, this is going to be a hung jury. So many people said that. And we I mean, I felt it was going to be a conviction. I didn't think it was going to come back as quickly as it did. But I thought he was going to get convicted.
5: Yeah, I agree with you, Sergeant Bill. We, we talk regularly about all of these high-profile crimes and cases, and uh, you may have been you know, in my top five of who I first texted upon hearing a verdict was in. We didn't know it exactly yet, but I too was surprised that it came back as quickly as it did. But here's the thing, and, and you brought up a good question. I just wanted to uh, to respond. You said, do people like this think they'll get away with it? I would say at least in this case with Alec Murdoch, I do believe he thought he was very smart, very savvy, understood the law, understood manipulation tactics and deflecting and creating doubt. But I think to the rest of us, when we really listened and just stayed, you know, focused on what was being presented, I truly didn't see the doubt. And I always try to be fair and neutral and detached and just listen to the presentation. But what doubt? Who else could it be? Was is anybody else being looked at or discussed? Of course not.
0: I agree. I agree. <laughs> Phil, what what are your thoughts?
5: Well, listen, I think that uh the way that the defense went
2: about it, they went after SLED, which was the state law enforcement division of South Carolina. And I think that you know, they were in a small town. They were the solicitors. They had control over their area. The state now, it's a different law enforcement agency. So I think that they were very, uh, you know, they, they showed tremendous integrity. They did the investigation. They uncovered a lot of evidence. Specifically, that uh, cell phone that belonged to Paul, it took them from... June seventh uh, I believe it was June seventh, twenty twenty one, when the murders took place. They weren't able to get into the phone and uh, get the information from the phone till April of twenty twenty two, almost a full year. So again, uh, he had told the story numerous times that he wasn't at the location. Now Sled was able to uncover this information from the cell phone that showed, wow, he's at the location. His voice is on that video. The specific date and time, you know, the phones can give exactness where the phone was when it took the video. What time exactness? And again, that blew apart his alibi. Uh, it really nailed the coffin on the defense. And one of the reporters that I heard earlier today said uh, Paul actually uh, solved his own murder case. And it's true. That video basically solved the case. Mm-hmm. We call that our smoking gun.
0: Absolutely.
2: And this case
1: qualifies under our death penalty statute based on the statutory aggravating circumstances of two or more people being murdered by the defendant by one act or pursuant to one scheme or course of conduct. I don't question at all the uh, decision of the state not to pursue The death penalty, but as I sit here in this courtroom and look around the many um, portraits of judges and other court officials and reflect on the fact that over the past century, your family, including you, have been prosecuting people here in this courtroom and many have received the death penalty, probably for lesser conduct. Remind me of the expression you uh, gave on the witness stand, was it tangled? Tangled, well, we weave. Oh, yeah. oh, what, tangled? web, we weave, what did you mean by that?
6: meant when I lied, I continued to lie.
1: And the question is, when will it end? When will it end? And it's ended already for the jury because they've concluded that you continue to lie and lie throughout your testimony. and perhaps with all the throng of people here they for the most part all believe or 80 90% 99% believe that you continue to lie now when you your statement of denial uh, to the court it was you know
0: i really I just so appreciate the judge's demeanor and how absolutely, you know, he's so uh, articulate, thoughtful, but he doesn't pull any punches. You know, he tells him exactly, you know, you chose this and you lie and you continue to lie. Even to today, when you said you're not guilty, you're lying again. And he, you know, I appreciate that in a judge. You know, sometimes the judge will play to the defense attorneys, and he didn't. He played, this guy just got convicted. I'm going to tell him exactly what I think of him, and he's going to prison for the rest of his life. You guys have nothing to say about that? <laughs> <laughs>
2: No, well, Billy, I want to read Richella Pranzo's comment. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's a quote from Sir Walter Scott, 1808. I think that is very powerful, that statement. Very-
0: Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Debbie, I'm going to give you final thoughts, and then we're going to, uh, I'll give Phil final thoughts, and then we're going to say uh, good afternoon to everyone.
5: Thank you. No, I just wanted to uh, piggyback, Sergeant Bill, on your statement about Judge Newman. I think he did a fantastic job. You know, for those of us who were watching uh, right there live when the sentencing hearing was happening and then his closing remarks, I completely agree with you. I think his demeanor, his decorum, his professionalism, his um, approach to this entire judicial process. As a professor, I would give it an A-plus, truly. Um, He didn't raise his voice. There was nothing aggressive. But the message was heard far and wide throughout the world, and that is people who commit murder, the judicial process will occur and the facts will be presented. And and this jury and, and final thoughts and remarks, I think, just did a fantastic job and reviewed it all, came to the right conclusion, unraveled and, and revealed who truly Alex Murdoch is today, not decades ago, but today as a murderer times two of his wife and son.
0: Absolutely. And you know, uh, the, just another part to that is that this judge made a lot of very difficult legal decisions, allowing the financial crimes to come into this that many people may feel that was the deal breaker that won the case, but I don't think so. But I think it, it was courageous of him. He could have said, Oh no, it's too prejudicial. Then he but he said, No, this is who this guy is. And this has really something to do with why he murdered his wife and his son. And he allowed it in there. And you know, some I'm not, I'm not an attorney, but some defense attorneys would say, Oh, that's going to be the basis for appeal. Maybe. But let's, you know, that's why we have a system like we have. Phil, final words.
2: Final words. Justice served for Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch. God bless their souls. However, we still have a criminal investigation into Stephen Smith's uh, alleged motor vehicle accident, Gloria Satisfield's accident at the house. And I'm sure there's the civil case against uh, the family regarding Mallory Beach. Let's get uh, justice served for those individuals and any other people who were uh, unjustly treated by Alec Murdoch and his uh, financial crimes. Uh, Let's just hope and pray that, uh, you know, we do get the justice. I think that uh, the story, the door is closed on the double homicide. However, the door is still open on these other crimes. Let's get justice on them as well.
0: Absolutely. Folks, I just want to thank all you guys that were watching us today for coming by. This was a case that we covered uh, right at the outset. We didn't cover it as often as we maybe should have, but uh, it's a a super interesting case. And again, thank you all you guys that came by today and listened. And Dr. Debbie Goodman, thank you for coming by. And always, Phil, Detective Phil, Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil, (laughs) police off the cuff. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks again, Doc, and have a great day and
5: stay safe, everyone. Thank you both. One episode just saying enough.